Welcome to Screen Quest, a podcast where a fellowship of film lovers and armchair movie experts plays film roulette. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Waterman, joined as always by Mae Finch. Hey, hey. And of course, we have Mr. Will Rotondi. Hey, guys. How's it going? On today's episode, we are going to be covering uh, May's very first time seeing 2001, A Space Odyssey, which was part of our You've Never Seen uh, film podcast prompt. There we go. Tongue twister. And of course, we'll be drawing a side quest. And I even have a special one-off game for my two co-hosts who have no idea what it is. So that's going to be a little bit of uh, an excitement at the end of the episode. But first, we thought we would uh, let's do a little catch up on what we've been watching. I know I like to do these periodically, uh, catch up on on what we've all been checking out. So, uh, May, I, I'll let you go first. Yeah. So I've had to take a couple of sick days this week. So I've been watching and playing a lot of stuff. Um, I just started Better Call Saul. I know I'm behind the wave on that. But uh, I've heard great things, and I am um, blanking on his name, but I love the guy that plays uh, Saul Goodman, and so I'm excited to fully get into that series. Um, I also just started uh, The Extraordinary Attorney Wu on Netflix. Um, I love it because it's um, kind of, it, it, it scratches the like mystery procedural itch that I have and is also very like cute and wholesome, so... Uh, yeah, those are the main two things I've been on this week. Great. Uh, silly question, I because I, I assume nothing. Uh, have you seen Breaking Bad prior to Saul? <laughs> I have seen most of Breaking Bad. Okay. I I really had an issue with like the 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 overwhelming gory violence um, of of the show, and I know Better Call Saul has less of that, so that's the main reason. Way less. Yeah, <laughs> um, there's still like violent moments, but uh, yeah, it's it's totally very. Because it's an interesting story. I just I was physically nauseous during some scenes. Yeah, uh, anything in particular you care to share? <laughs> uh, dang that like sec it was the second episode with the 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 meat slushy. <laughs> <laughs> the tub, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that yep. stood out. Uh, I I have a problem with like brains. So the that scene where someone's head got crushed under a, I guess it was a vending machine or something. But yeah. Oh, the safe. Yeah. 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 But that's like that, that episode's called Peekaboo, and the... that was also just emotionally brutal. Yes, the the little um between Jesse and the little boy. Yeah. Um, that is such a uh, a memorable standout episode for a lot of reasons. But yeah, somebody does get their head smooshed. Um, yeah. Know. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying Saul. Um, you've got a lot of green pastures. Uh, that's a show that I think ended perfectly. So when you get to the end, we'll have to talk. Um, glad that you're enjoying that. And uh, what you said, the wonderful attorney Wu. Did I get that right? Extraordinary attorney Wu. Um, it is a Korean show on Netflix that is very good so far. Very <laughs> cool. Uh, Mr. Rotondi, what have you been watching? Uh, it's been a toss up between She-Hulk and the rings of power getting nice. my lord of the rings fix after after so long so that's pretty much what's been on the docket on this end yeah how i have not started the rings of power i promised my brother we'd watch it together since we uh 
saw the films and theaters together. Uh, so that's on the agenda for by the end of the weekend. Uh, how are you finding it? So I, I have to say, I already, I do like it. Like, I, I think that from what I heard beforehand, I kind of, uh, I kind of had, I didn't want to go in with any expectations because I'd heard some people that said they liked it, other people that said it was underwhelming. And I think that if you are comparing it to the original films, the Peter Jackson movies, not necessarily The Hobbit, although maybe also that, um, I think that it does, it has very much the same feel and the same look and the music is beautiful and the costuming is great. Uh, and I like the characters. I think that there's actually some interesting interplay and it's not just paying fan service, although I can't actually speak to the time period that they're actually trying to base this on. So I feel like in some ways that can help. In other ways, I don't know, for those who are like hardcore Lord of the Rings fans who've read all the books, who know like all the mythology, they might be a little bit more critical, but overall I'm enjoying it. I I do have to ask how how is the like CGI because I, mm -hmm. I I've been a bit wary after watching The Hobbit. Maybe. I was too. Yeah, yeah. that's actually a great <laughs> point. Um, and that was the thing that I was kind of concerned about was that it was just going to be like CGI laden and there was going to be a ton of it. Um, but I actually think it's been balanced so far. I mean, there's been a couple of very noticeable CGI moments in the first episode or two, and but I don't think it like. I don't think that it became what the focus was. Um, okay. It's very much more character driven and a lot of it looks like practical. I mean, some of the, like the big spanning shots, you're like, okay, obviously CGI, very beautiful right. CGI of like all the land features and everything. But no, I think it actually, I think it holds up better than I thought it would in terms of finding that balance between like, this is just adding to it. This is not becoming the focus of what the story is going to be. So I really appreciated that. That's good. Because, yeah, I don't have a problem with CGI use. I prefer practical effects when they can be used. But, like, mm -hmm. The Hobbit, it was distracting. I could not enjoy parts mm -hmm. of those films because it was so bad. Agreed. And I, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, disclaimer, because I've only seen, like, the first of the, of the three, I guess, movies because of that. So I can completely... Oh, wait, it, oh. it gets worse. I'm so sorry. No. Yeah. Uh, Especially in 4K. Day, I'll, I'll okay. Oh, I, no. I, got, I got a box set as a uh, as a gift and yeah. uh, I was like you know what I haven't seen all of these before and some of them I've only seen once and let me tell you in high definition it looks even worse like ultra high definition like you can really oh, no. see the strings so to speak no. um, and it's just like whereas like Peter Jackson's like original trilogy like the Lord of the Rings has gotten mm -hmm. better with age and i think that's because mm -hmm. speaking of practical he used the what they called bigatures which are like giant miniatures right that like mm -hmm. stood in for things like helms deep and Minas Tirith, and like really look believably real you know it's a yeah. physical space um yeah. yeah so it's good to hear though like I i'm cautiously optimistic they spent a half a billion dollars on one season of the show i'm sure Ooh, some of yeah. that is marketing costs and other things, but they are definitely putting their money where their mouth is in terms of like commitment to yeah. giving it a the good old college try, so to speak. So, <laughs> yeah. yep, that's true. Uh, sp speaking of fantasy shows that uh, I was lukewarm on, um, whether or not I wanted to watch it, I've been watching The House of the Dragon and oh, have been yeah. pleasantly surprised by the first two episodes. I went in Oof. wanting to not like that show after the end of game <laughs> of thrones and i'm finding it quite enjoyable um 
I don't think it's a spoiler to say that because they've kind of just talked about it in terms of structure. But yeah, the first season is going to feature several time jumps, which I like. Mm-hmm. I think like it's um, it's an interesting way to do a story that's going to, going to span a long period of time, right? Where you can kind of hit the important moments or like periods in these people's lives. I love some of the casting choices and uh, you know, it's nice to see some people of color in both Lord of the Rings and, and uh, uh, the house of the dragons. And I know that the internet, unfortunately is being the internet, especially towards the Lord of the Rings and like review bombing and stuff. But um, I think the diversity of, of cast, I can't speak for Lord of the Rings, but house of the dragon has really uh, made the show better, put it that way. Mm. Like, so um what else we uh are currently like wrapping up jackie brown i say that because my wife sometimes despite her best efforts doesn't manage to stay awake when we're watching a movie um but she uh decided to watch jackie brown with me and has really enjoyed it and uh so that's how the tarantino rewatch is going um what is most interesting because it's the only script he didn't write it's adapted from an elmore leonard novel um and I love like kind of the black exploitation like take and like the the soundtrack's wonderful, um, and of course like the cast of characters you got De Niro, Samuel L. Jackson, um, Pam Greer of course is just amazing. Mm. Um, mm. So uh, if you've never seen that, so it's an interesting one. It's probably his least violent movie and the most un Tarantino Tarantino movie that ever <laughs> was. Like, and it's not a bad thing necessarily. It just like it lacks a lot of his like flavor. It's got all his love, you know, for like old films and like you can tell he's like paying homage to a lot of like genres and things but um distinctly un tarantino-esque in my opinion um but good nonetheless it's more if you like cape we talked about caper and heist movies yeah. it is kind yeah. of in a weird way a heist movie like in a very mm-hmm. unconventional way so there you go there's hmm. my 30 second pitch on jackie brown's on hbo max right now um nice. i'm trying to think is there anything else that we've watched um more the bear more curve nothing new i guess so yeah that's that's about it for us empire at the movie theater yeah so, so empire strikes back last night at sunray that was fun did you uh, uh, have to shush anyone i didn't no shushing last night thank god um there was some guy i was telling will like kind of off mic uh, who was laughing at like the weirdest things it wasn't annoying it was just puzzling like, it would be like millennium, millennium falcon you're clear to land and he was like <laughs> like i nudged marianne and i was like going on there um who knows maybe he just had an edible and was having a good time um but yeah never know. That, that'd be my guess <laughs> you never know jacksonville honestly so. um no it was fun though they had they made like um star wars themed twinkies so which i what it was like darth vader like colored like you know, i had like kind of the like frosting with some black sprinkles and some you know other like colors from his like chest out there and their little a little ring um little plastic darth vader head ring which i get that's That's really cool yeah Yeah. good times hard not to have a good time at sunray so it's such a good little theater i love it well that i think does it for uh for ketchup so let's have a side quest shall we i'll have one side of quest please one side of quest (laughs) okay so this one is and i'd like to thank uh to refresh the memory of our audience and uh maybe even our our host i'd like to thank is uh talking about a movie that heavily influenced your life and why um will i know you've gone on this one because i think you talked about life as a house correct 
Uh, talked about Black is a House for one of those way back. I think that was Diamond in the Rough. Was, was it Diamond in the Rough? Yeah, it was right. like the. It was really good, but it was kind of underrated, or people didn't like. I don't know. It didn't seem to get as much publicity. But I could have been wrong about that. But yeah. yeah, it's. <laughs> I only edit the, the stupid podcast. I should probably remember this stuff better. <laughs> or like no, you're write fine. down some more stats. But uh, my dude, um, did, I forgot you... Carl Sagan wrote contact, so you don't have to worry about anything. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we look. It's in it. Go back to take zero. We said we're not perfect, and that is that stands. That will stand until the end of this podcast, like in the end of time, basically. Yeah. Um, does anybody have one that you'd like to talk about? For I'd like to thank. I can throw one out there. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It, it's it's sort of a I'd like to think, but kind of like a spin, like the last one where I talked about ET and how it influenced my life. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and throw out, I'd like to think. Um, I'd like to thank Jaws um, for terrifying right. me to never want to go into the ocean again. <laughs> 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 like when I was a kid, I legit did not want to go into the ocean because after watching that film, I would always think like, because usually like, the most ocean experience I got was either Virginia Beach or like the Charleston coast, uh, Edisto Beach area. Uh, and so, you know, when the water's kind of murky and you can't see what's down there and you're not sure what you're stepping on, I mean, you're it, it's it's ridiculous to think about because it's like you're only so far from land, like you're not literally swimming on the ocean, but it was still like that to me just sort of like freaked me out about what is down there that I might step on, whose like home am, not, am I going into, and I do not want to deal with that. <laughs> so i don't know it's really silly in retrospect and i definitely don't have that fear anymore uh to the same extent but i think that i i say that because i think that jaws did really well what it intended to do which was to scare the crap out of everybody and that it did it so well sort of indirectly like there were animatronic issues with the shark and so a lot of what happens with it you don't actually see and to a large extent that's more terrifying than actually seeing it happen so i think that that in a lot of ways was an indirect uh help to the film as why it was so terrifying to me the but, opening yeah. to that movie would be way less scary had you like seen the shark there would have been shock factor but like mm -hmm. just seeing her like being tugged around violently and like it's just out of reach like below the surface and like mm -hmm. that opening still fucks me up man like yeah. you are 100 correct mm -hmm. I, I agree you're not alone in that by the way i think like <laughs> most people that watch jaws are at least a little bit uh hesitant to want to go into the water after that you know at least i think so. it's a it's like a sign of a really good film where there's like as a collective like as a cultural icon of some sort that it's like we don't want to do this because this film like said we should not go out there i feel like that was the same in a weird way and i've seen a lot of memes of this lately so it's like why i'm thinking of it now uh that all the jokes about final destination 2 like don't drive behind a uh like a log truck because we saw that <laughs> film and we know what happens to you if that thing falls apart and i'm like yep that's actually kind of valid i i feel like i have not done that so <laughs> tragically somebody from my high school passed away that way i don't know no if it was a log, no oh my god it, dude, it was something no. came off like the something large so it was either like a a log or like a a pole or something yeah oh, unfortunately geez. like geez. oh my god so like that's yeah i mean uh, yes it is uh it is a cultural fear but like i mean that like stuff happens you know and yeah. uh and shark, shark attacks, attacks happen right yeah i, I yeah, think the plausibility bro. is what you know even if it's like unlikely like the plausibility of like 
probably not but maybe is what makes that kind of stuff like i've seen too many fail army videos to think that it can't man i've seen too many <laughs> things on the on the interstate falling apart and hitting each other mm. yeah absolutely uh now here's the question did you ever irrationally and uh it's okay because I, I will volunteer first and say i did as a kid like think that sharks could be in the deep end of your pool when you're doing like night swims like because absolutely as a kid i was just like irrationally afraid <laughs> it was like, no don't don't feel bad I, any anything in water anywhere you didn't see that could be behind you i think was like a terrifying idea like yeah. just something that you it's out of your focus and then i'm like yep no <laughs> uh to it to a t i grew up uh with a lake in my backyard and Ooh. it yeah. uh is like deep enough you can't see the bottom for most of it and I was just, I was just convinced one of those days I was going to be out there and a shark would get me to just, just anything could happen. <laughs> yeah. Now Floridians, we know you don't swim in, uh, any kind of freshwater, um, yeah. body that you can't see for a completely different reason, which is alligators. Like that's a real right. thing that can happen here, um, which I'm as an adult, I think more afraid of than sharks, honestly. Um, cause yeah. it seems like there's more instances of like things happening, but Yeah. yeah. In in hindsight, like my my childhood was kind of wild because it was a small enough neighborhood that like we knew almost like all the neighbors, like everyone kind of talked. So we all just like had agreed that like if one of us saw a gator, we'd like let the others know because no one had ever seen a gator in this lake. But it's just like it's kind of crazy how often I went swimming and mm -hmm. <laughs> where I couldn't see anything. <laughs> yeah no uh, even in upstate new york like for summer camps i used to go visit for like a month as a kid i would be convinced the shark was gonna get me and like you know made no sense because the a like none of those bodies of water like connected to the ocean and b it was like constantly at like 68 degrees like it was cold you know the finger lakes but doesn't matter it's as well said the effect of that like movie was just such that like it's water that i can't see below so therefore shark imminent <laughs> yeah i uh i still have not seen jaws but i do know <sighs> a weird conspiracy theory about it i used to listen to quite a bit of true crime and uh there's a famous murder case called the lady in the dunes where like during the filming of jaws a woman was found in the dunes nearby uh Ooh. her body uh had been like mutilated and like was very mysterious no one knew who she was uh, anyway, there's a theory that one of the extras in the film was her murderer. Whoa. Yeah, bum, actually, bum. I feel like I've, I've heard that before. Um, isn't there, like, somebody in particular, or, like, didn't they, like, comb through the footage or subpoena a bunch of the footage to, like, look for, like, even stuff unused to try to um, find somebody? I feel like this is ringing a slight bell. But, yeah, there, it's a very specific extra. I don't remember what features. This was a while ago that I read about this, but I, I they had like either a, a hat or a shirt or something that had been identified by another witness, like in the area where the body was found, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, still extremely I, circumstantial, but as that that's why it's a conspiracy theory, <laughs> right? I love a lot of the mythology like surrounding uh, the film. I recently watched like a documentary on the uh, the 4K that was like about the enduring legacy of the film. And uh, I had no idea. So the the orca, the one that, uh, so they built two orcas, which is like the ship that like the back half takes place on. Mm -hmm. One of them was like a proper drivable boat. 
that uh, ended up at the Universal backlot after the filming was done. The other was one that they built just to sink over and over and over again. And that one ended up in some guy's like front yard slash marsh, <laughs> like off of Martha's Vineyard, because he's like the guy that built it and owned it. And over time, unfortunately, like people like basically stripped it to nothing. Like they took the porthole mm. out, the mast, like all this stuff. So it is like right now, I think like 10 boards or something like wow. really small, unfortunately. But people would like trespass. They would take a boat at night, go find it and like take pictures. And they like in the documentary, they have like YouTube videos of people that are like totally trespassing on this guy's property. And um, there's just so many cool things about that movie. Anyway, well, hey, uh, cheers to, to Jaws for... Um, <laughs> For making Will's life of aquatic adventures a living hell, I guess. <laughs> and a little bit safer. <laughs> and a little safer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm way less inclined to swim alone because of that movie, which is a good practice anyway. <laughs> so there you go. Okay, well. Thanks, Josh, uh, for teaching us the buddy system. The buddy system, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um. I'm going to turn it over now to to May because we're discussing 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was one of May's nominees for a film that she had never seen. So, May, you've got to cross this off the pile of shame. Um, Finally. Take it away. Yes. Finally. Yeah. So, like, very famous film, 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, Stanley Kubrick film. Was it one of his early? It's one of his earlier films, right? Yeah. Because this came out in 1968. Um, I don't know if doing a plot synopsis is a great idea for this one, but yeah, I don't think you necessarily, I mean, it's up to you, actually. I'm not going to tell you, you could do, do whatever you feel like. There's is, a so. lot of visual storytelling, light on dialogue, kind of light on plot. Basically, there is a monolith. They decide to go to Jupiter because of this monolith. There is some uh, humans versus machines stuff as the robot turns on the human crew and the last surviving crew member has some kind of strange surreal alien encounter towards the end and that's basically the movie (laughs) (laughs) as as light as it is on all of that kind of stuff visually i just like was losing it um one of the most gorgeous films i've ever seen and like i had a little trouble the first 10 minutes with the with the apes but uh (laughs) after that um i was very into it (laughs) um so what did you think of the reality of the apes versus your supposition last episode (laughs) i thought i i yeah i don't know they could still be a dream sequence i'm hoping that was just a dream (laughs) uh but after that um honestly if you i i wouldn't have believed this came out in 1968 just from mm. from, from how good it looks um i mentioned this on twitter a little while ago but i'm, I'm a sucker for like stark lighting and just like every scene in this was just so gorgeous with how the lighting was done um mm. even even the little space scenes um with the little models which i love how is this like rewatching for you guys well, i think 2001 is a beautiful movie i um I remember the first time I watched it as a kid, though, I didn't think that necessarily to the same degree, because as a kid, I was more used to, and I think we've even talked about this before in comparison to other sort of more um, atmospheric sci-fi versus like the traditional sort of like action adventure sci-fi that came out around the same time. So like Star Wars or 
uh, maybe even Star Trek to some degree, but not necessarily the same amount, um, where there's it's more open to interpretation in 2001 as to what's going on. It's just visually immersive. And so when I saw it as a kid, and my mom even warned me about it because she was the one who recommended it. She was like, I think you might like this movie, but just be aware it's really long and it's really weird. And so I thought, okay, <laughs> so, you know, grab some pizza, had like a Sunday afternoon. We were moving at the time. Um, uh, my dad was in the army, so we were in between duty stations for him. And um, I remember watching this film and thinking, yeah, it's very long and it is very weird. Uh, but as I watch it more uh, over the years, having watched it more, and this is probably like the fourth or fifth time I've watched it, um, probably in its entirety uh, in one go, it, it is, it always stands up. Like I, the visuals are amazing. Uh, the practical effects are great. The music is, which I, I would love to talk about just the, just the story behind the music of it, but like the music itself, the selections are all great. And I like the fact that a lot of the movie is open to your interpretation. I didn't like that before. I used to be much more like, I need to know what's going on. Why is this happening? But I appreciate 2001 for the fact that it does leave it open to your imagination. Uh, if you wanted something that's more concrete, you can read the book that was written around the same time by Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, but if you wanted to, you know, kind of leave it open to to just experiencing it i think that the film itself is amazing oh, i was just gonna say well if you want to talk about the music you can do that that is so i thought it was it's hilarious now but i'm sure it was like i can't imagine what this guy must have felt like so they they went through about i think it was two or three different composers like the studio really wanted kubrick to have original music for the film and he just kept listening to you know whether it was classical music or it was uh, I would guess not necessarily obscure music, maybe, depending. I don't know what it would have been like back then for their ability to to get access to some of the uh, the, the soundtrack or some of the, the songs that are on the soundtrack in the film. But you, know, you listen to some of this stuff and it's both like really moving and also very disconcerting. And it, it's, it adds a lot to the atmosphere of the film. Um, but then when you read about how you know he kept fighting with the studio about finding a composer he would hire a composer and then he would either like let them go or he would just not take their <laughs> you know the stuff that they made and i think it was the last guy that he had who actually he had worked with on another film i think it was dr strangelove and he the guy like wrote all this music for the film and he shows up to the premiere and none of it's in the movie and it's like <laughs> kubrick never told him that he didn't use it and i thought man oh, that no. is is absolutely horrifying like how would you feel you'd be mortified that your stuff didn't get didn't make it so i don't know on the one hand i think it's it's an interesting story in itself outside of the film for that whole process but just talking about like some of the some of the music that's in it too like the um when they come up on the monolith you know whether it's the apes at the beginning or whether it's the the mission uh to the moon that you see um shortly after that when they do a time jump then you know it's it's interesting to me that all of this was already music that was out there it had been created it wasn't made for the sake of the, of the movie and just thinking about what it would have been like to have created that and what the circumstances were behind it because it's very um but it, it was just it was very uh disturbing and also very uh moving to listen to yeah the there's a really strong contrast for me between these uh kind of like 
epic classical uh pieces of the score like like with the monkeys waving the bones around and the, the triumphant uh sounds there and then this the really stark unnerving um i'm sure like dune was channeling this movie when when they were making some of the kind of like um sound effects for that as well but uh yeah just the the unnatural droning dark sounds that play whenever the monolith is in view uh, really big contrast between those two. Um, for a movie that I I love so much, I don't rewatch this a whole lot because it is sparse, and I think it requires a lot of the viewer. Like you have to really engage with this movie to to get out what you can get out of it. Um, but I do like rewatching it um, every so often, and um, I think it is one of those movies that just will be timeless forever considering this is a year before the moon landing, like the attention to detail about so much of the technology um, that's used and, and how things work in space doesn't feel cheesy or hokey in the way that, you know, say a lot of movies from like the fifties and sixties that were sci-fi probably right. did. Um, and a lot of that's out, I think to Kubrick's um, obsessiveness over like detail and getting things right. Uh, the special effects are insane. There's still some things I, I don't know how they do in the movie. Um, I've, looked up a lot of it out of curiosity but there's still some shots that i have no idea how they pull it off and i think that's that's movie magic at its best right you're like you know that there's no cgi like here um i did see like a little fun thing on twitter um maybe we can plug on their social media about how they did the floating pen which was basically Mm. just a a pane of glass with double-sided tape which was recently invented and they literally just like lifted and spun the pane of glass with the mm. the pen on it and you just because like the top of the glass and the person holding it, it's like off camera it just looks like it's suspended in midair and when she comes up and picks it up she's just literally like pulling it free of the tape that's holding it to the that's glass beautiful wow. it's amazing <laughs> it's absolutely amazing um but you know i love it and uh i will i agree with you like the the book is almost like um exposition central compared to this mm-hmm. like it's very clear there's almost no ambiguity in the book whatsoever um as far as like motives and like what's going on it's all laid pretty bare and i think it makes it less interesting personally i like the book like don't get me wrong but i think like it it explains things so much mm-hmm. came after the script so uh he had like a short story uh arthur c clark i mean that kind of laid the groundwork for this and then kubrick and um Arthur C. Clarke wrote the script together and then he did the book kind of afterwards and then wrote the subsequent sequels. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think it's way less interesting. I don't know. Like I I like (laughs) this movie kind of makes you work for it a little bit and you kind of have to engage with it. I think that it's, uh, it's unique in that regard. There's not a lot of movies that um, would trust the audience to, Mm -hmm. to do that. Um, So yeah, I I mean, it's a masterpiece, but can I say it's one of those movies that like, I, I understand that it's very dry and uh, it's not for everybody and it's not a popcorn flick. Like I, I always give a disclaimer if somebody's like, Oh, I've never seen that. I'm never like, Oh yeah, baby. That's a great Friday night pizza movie. Like, you know, like no, it is very much like be ready to like get, give 120% to it because if you do, it's quite, quite rewarding. Otherwise like, you're very likely to fall asleep and that's okay. It took me like three attempts, I think in high school, just to pick the right time to to get through this. And then it became one of my favorite movies ever, but it did take three attempts because I tried watching it while I was sick. Oh, was, no. Oh, I yeah. Was, I can't Feverish. imagine the, the dreams that you had after that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I just like, you know, popping some uh, some Theraflu or some Dayquil or something. And then just like all that beautiful classical music and ships just kind of like floating listlessly. Like, I just put me right out, you know, like, but yeah, the uh, the monolith's always been scary. That's the last thing I'll add. Uh, something about that, mm. you know, like, shit out of me. I may or may not have had an existential dread, you know, one time a little uh we'll say inebriated on something um where like the old bowman is like in you know his deathbed and the monolith staring at him i was you know just at the time thinking like this would be the most terrifying thing that like if this didn't kill you from fear like it'd be the worst thing to see <laughs> like before you pass away is right? just this howling monolith that's like looking at you i don't know it's almost like a tombstone in a way but yeah that's uh Ooh has always kind of disturbed me a little bit the monolith yeah no the the monolith is super interesting because it seems like i mean in the opening scene where you see it with like the um apes it seems like a very kind of like primal primal thing and then when you see it later on the moon like the the context really changes how i feel about it and each of the like four times that you see it because you see it then on the moon with the astronauts going down and it's like um suddenly this this futuristic crazy thing that they found and then um it gets more abstract as the movie goes on when it's just kind of like floating around jupiter and it and it blends in with the darkness and i know this part seems like it's rather open to interpretation but almost like some kind of a black hole or something um and then obviously at, at the end when you're right chris it, it's very reminiscent of a tombstone <laughs> mm. It's just, it's so interesting. I I have to do a lot of thinking about this movie now, <laughs> honestly. But like, uh, yeah, my uh, my first impressions are still like this. This now occupies a place in my heart, right next to Contact. I will say, like, they do feel very similar in spirit to me. Mm. Another thing that stood out was the use of color. Uh, this is one thing I love about the like early Star Trek shows is. You have these like white, gray, black machines and ships that are kind of devoid of color generally, but then uh, they they always do a really good job of using these accents of bright primary, secondary colors. Like one of my favorite set designs was early on in the film with uh, that like space station lobby with all the big red, mm. funny looking chairs, because yeah. um, it just like it's so stark and like if you're trying to seem kind of unnatural and futuristic. There's this trend recently to like make everything white and shiny and glossy. And I kind of hate that because no, like bright colors are super like unusual in nature, especially in space. And to me, that is more interesting visually to look at and more stimulating visually. Um, so I loved all the use of color, like the, um, I kind of I kind of laughed when they put the red spacesuits, uh, well, I guess red, yellow, and uh, blue space space suits on, because they have those two little lights on the helmet that when it's like bent down, kind of looks like a like a head or a face, mm. <laughs> like a caterpillar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just all all these little details I really loved. The only other thing that kind of stood out was. For some reason, Kubrick really likes to have people confront mortality inside of green, creepy bathrooms. 
because that scene was like very reminiscent of uh, a similar scene in The Shining. So yeah, just like so many interesting visual tidbits. I feel like I've just had a feast and I have to digest now for a while. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this movie, despite being sparse of dialogue and like obvious plot. There's there's a lot to to take in. Yeah, yeah. I know I'm going to just keep rambling if I if I go on, but I did want to talk <laughs> with you guys about the uh, the ending, I guess, and kind of what you guys make of it. Uh, it's it's not an ending that really tells you what it is or what to think. I guess uh, emotionally or literally, what did you guys get out of it? You've always seen it as like a death and a rebirth, right? Like the mm. image of the monolith being a sort of tombstone like, and uh, you know, there there it's like a baby in the womb that's kind of floating um, in space. Uh, I think referred to as the, the star child. Um, it, it's always been sort of like a transcendental thing to me. Um, I read a really interesting article uh sort of or uh, academic essay i should say in college that viewed this like in terms of like uh like a nietzschean like uh perspective of like dave bowen becomes like the superman i don't know if i would go that far but i do think there's something transcendental about what bowman goes through and the fact that he's old and then kind of you know presumably like this this child um, is that he has uh, been reborn as something else. And uh, if you ever read the sequel books or uh, see the sequel movie 2010, which is okay, uh, it's not nearly as good as this, um, they kind of lay that a little bit more plainly, I guess, which I don't like. Like they kind of um, go into more detail with that. But yeah, I've always just read it as like some sort of transcendental journey that ends in like a rebirth of him becoming something else entirely you know almost like one with the universe and like uh an entity like amongst the stars and um i don't know that's that's about as much as i can articulate it really <laughs> <laughs> uh what about you will pretty much on par the same thing sort of thinking back to how the apes learned you know they were prompted on how to to use tools thanks to their interaction with the monolith it was sort of guiding uh, bowman along the next course in human evolution for what he could become um, and so that's pretty much how i read it uh, i actually really thought it was fascinating just the idea of like the the time jumps that he experiences with that transition where it's almost like he sees himself at these different stages and then becomes that next stage of himself along that path before he eventually becomes old and then becomes the star child um because i feel like the only real cut where he you don't see that is when he's about to i guess lose his human physical form uh where he sees himself you know age periodically between when he initially arrives there and then when there's like the older version of him at a table eating food and then the really older version of himself in the bed reaching up toward the monolith in front of him and then suddenly he is the star child um, and so that to me I thought was very I guess for lack of a better word it's really trippy <laughs> you know? yeah I, uh, yeah it was pretty good um, I liked it I like the fact that you don't really know what's going on and that it is sort of left open to what you imagine sort of the the monolith is intentional like either coaxing him on how to do or it is intentionally doing something to him and whether or not that's good or bad is really you know you, you sort of have to make your own judgment call on that I had a much darker read when I first watched it. Then I went and like mm. read that interview with Kubrick that I shared with you guys. And it was like, oh, okay, that's what he was going for. But I, 
<laughs> I thought that the the aliens were just kind of keeping the, him there, waiting for him to die, and that he needed to die for the alien to like be born. I didn't like oh. think that it was the same entity. Yeah. So yeah, mine mine was more macabre. But I, <laughs> I kind of like yours though too. Like that's uh, that's fucking sinister. Just, just running like... out the clock on him, basically. Yeah. No, I mean valid interpretation. They don't give you a lot to work with, and so, it's so much of my explanation here. I think it's impossible not to have it colored. Like I cannot recall what my first take would have been on this. I've read so much about this and of course read the novel. Like it's hard right. to say like what I would have made originally. Like who knows? I think I was probably just stunned into like a stupor, you know, like yeah. <laughs> what is going on? Um, what did but you yeah. think of the sequence, May? Like like all the lead up to that. Like I, I, I'm always still really impressed by it. I know some of it's just a color filter over like footage of the Grand Canyon and whatever else. But like this, like the stuff behind Will, for example, um, for our... Uh, you know our viewers you can kind of see he's got like a still like um what did you think of it i thought i think it's really impressive for the most part still um i i really like the stuff that was clearly computer generated um and uh the the thing that took me out of it was where it seemed like just like different color gradients over existing footage um just it, it felt so different from the other stuff and like yeah. it's very obvious how he arrived at it I, I liked the more abstracted forms um I actually kind of got distracted and looked at my phone for a while and it was just the filtered images <laughs> it's a bit long isn't it? yeah it's like really long <laughs> yeah uh but no I I loved all the other uh like sequences especially um when it was these kind of like cell-like shapes which kind of fell into like the the life and birth themes i think a bit um and like i i always like when you're looking at fundamental forms and seeing kind of the interplay between like uh you know geometric shapes and mm -hmm. you know the shapes essential to life might can we talk more about the <laughs> geometry of the oh yeah there you go yeah man. i'm just gonna name cell cell uh, <laughs> components now see how much i remember from ap bio <laughs> nice sorry well go ahead oh no i was just gonna say can we talk more about can we talk about geometry in this film yes. because i feel like that's also a very important point to bring up take it away rotondi Nice. Okay, so rectangles and circles. No, <laughs> no I, I like the I like that you see. I mean, the monolith itself is very much like that's what you see a lot of. You see a lot of rectangles throughout the you know the course of the film, but you also see a lot of circles or spheres that show up too, which I thought was interesting. And so I'm just kind of curious to know what you guys thought about like your read on what the purpose behind those would be necessarily, or if you want me to throw some some stuff out there. I wanted to hear your take first because I, I don't know that I have necessarily immediate thoughts, but hearing kind of where you're coming from might jog something. So feel free. Yeah. The only thing that stood out to me uh, was like the the practical use of circular shapes in terms of having kind of a rotating artificial gravity. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious to, to hear what else you think about it. Or just it seems really interesting to me that like all the so like the stuff that sort of seems like it's associated with a tool is rectangular in shape generally um so like if we're thinking about like the body of the ship is sort of the propulsion to get them where they're going but like the the head of the ship where all the people live is sort of like that the spheres seem to be more of like 
I don't know emblematic of like where life would be so like a spherical mm. planet or like the sphere where all the people live in the ship where there's like the artificial or the yeah the artificial gravity that chris was talking about um but like all the tools seem to be like rectangular so like whether we're even by extension maybe like the bone that the ape uses at the beginning after he's touched the monolith or like how um, how is like yeah. i mean even though there's like the ring in the middle of it like the mm -hmm. you know the frame of how is rectangular but see, I really, I'm glad that you brought up Hal because he is sort of like, to me, I think that's a great sort of, um, you don't really know if Hal is or isn't conscious because they even bring that up. There's the question of, is Hal, like, can he feel, can he, is he just emulating everything or is Hal actually like conscious? And I think it's really fascinating that of all the shapes in there, he is a combination of like the monolith, you know, the rectangular monolith and the mm -hmm. sphere, you know, for his eye. And so I thought, hmm. that's really interesting that he is. So yeah, you don't, because you, you don't really know, you know, is he, is the failure that in, at least in the sense of the film, you know, is the failure that he supposedly has, you know, is that, you know, human error in a in like a certain sense or just, you know, a conscious error uh, for him or is there, you know, what else is going on? So I thought that was really cool to see that kind of play out. I had, had not considered it, but the way that you're framing, that's really interesting that he's kind of like the marriage of organic and, you know, or like life and, and like tools, right? Like, yeah. like he was designed to be a tool, but then it's like he's also maybe more than that now. So I don't know. But yeah, I find Hal to be a very fascinating character in this film. And I also feel kind of sad for him at the same point that he's also like a murderer. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where you're like, uh, on the one hand, you did kill a lot of people, but on the other hand, you didn't want to die. So I'm like, you kind of felt like it was you versus them. So which we could talk more about if we want to. I think Hal is like I would yeah. love to talk about Hal because yes. I, I actually choked up a bit when Bowman, who is like clearly very rattled by what happened outside the spaceship and the fact that, you know, he's the only survivor at this point and he's rushing to try to shut Hal down, still has the compassion and like lends Hal the dignity of being like, yeah, sing for me, Hal. When, when, when Hal asks, he kind of reverts to his early programming and asks if he, you know, wants to hear the song that he learned. Um, and like I, I teared up as he was singing because like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of the humanity of machines is just whatever humanity we allow them to have. And Bowman was kind of the only person on the ship that um, implicitly granted Hal like some level of humanity and dignity. So that was a very moving, moving moment for me. Yeah, the way he interacts with them is like he's a member of the crew. Like Bowman interacts with them like he's a member of the crew. Um certainly he doesn't like order him around there's like genuine genuine concern um about the way he talks about him as you know uh, almost you could substitute like a crew member that was maybe having a psychotic break on one of those missions you know like that's how he, he like it, it is a place of concern and not just like oh this is just something that uh you know is a is a is a tool that we need to fix which i think right. is uh, interesting great voice acting too like <laughs> iconic yeah. If you have any, um, I won't say the names, so I don't make people's uh, hardware go on the fritz, but like the Amazon version or the <laughs> Apple version, you can say things like open the pod bay doors for a nice little Easter egg. If you've never done that, it's always fun. I nice. did not know that. I'll have to test that. Hey, Siri. Open the pod bay doors. Okay, but wipe your feet first. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that is not what I expected to hear. That's hilarious. So, did I come through on the mic for you guys? It yeah. did. <laughs> so uh, Alexa will actually say, um, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Like Dave, 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 Dave. Like it, it kind of like freaks out. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, good, good times that like the pop cultural uh, relevance of this movie is kind of expanded into our individual devices, like a little cheeky joke there. Um, but I, yeah, I think Hal is really, really interesting. And uh, so do you think it is human error or self-awareness that drives Hal to do like, in other words, like, is this a design flaw and how, or is Hal truly self-aware? How do you, how do you read his decision-making and like what he chooses to do and how it goes about it? I would say that all technology is fallible to some degree. I think that Hal got the blue screen of death and then he got scared that everybody was going to think that because he screwed up one time. I think it's sort of like a combination. Like, I feel like Hal could have some sort of consciousness going on. But I think that just through his programming, you know, something fouled up, some circuits didn't connect or something happened. And so it was just that he was terrified that they thought that because his record was supposed to be absolutely spotless that they were going to deactivate him and he didn't want to die. And so I could understand some existential terror at feeling like you didn't do your job right. And now the punishment is not like, oh, we're going to go back and reach, you know, and tweak you. We're literally just going to like switch you off. <laughs> and so I don't know. That's that's sort of how I would read it. Uh, knowing what I do now about AI, like, you know, living in the 21st century, um, I, I would say that they're very good at mimicry. For instance, if you look at today's kind of like conversational AI chatbots, they're very good at giving you the answers that would have been freaking out people in these kinds of sci-fi movies, right? Well, part mm -hmm. part of that's because they, they've literally been studying every sci-fi book and, and movie <laughs> and, you know, tons of conversations on the internet about that kind of thing. And they're very good at speaking that kind of language. So I, I don't think Hal is sentient. I think he's just very good at the job he was designed to do, which is mimicry and um, talking to humans in a way that is familiar and comforting. Um, I also think that the human error is actually Dr. Floyd's because mm -hmm. he only tells Hal about the actual mission. Mm -hmm. No one else. Mm -hmm. So Hal knows that he has information no one else does and is acting on that information in what he thinks is like accomplishing his mission and i believe that's what leads him to commit the murders and all of that is he the input he's gotten from dr floyd has uh been interpreted in a way dr floyd didn't expect <laughs> yeah i don't know that there's a right or wrong answer i think this is interesting how's interesting because he's one of the earliest on-screen depictions of like a you know ai gone amok and like a, a modern you know uh sense you know not like metropolis in other words where it's sort of programmed to do that right you know but like more of like in a skynet uh <laughs> you know like um method of running amok so um but i tend to agree with you uh may i think it is just input output as far as like what he knows of the mission is and what his sort of mission parameters are and then like here's how i can solve that problem and succeed on the mission right the mission parameters don't necessarily include the survival of, of the crew so therefore like like bye-bye you know i also think there's an important 
like foreshadowing in the scene that I hate with the chimps. Um, <laughs> um, I get I get like thematically and plot wise why it has to be there. It's just so annoying with them like shouting like Ellie got upset the whole time. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, Marlon was not having it. My our new kitty cat. Yeah. Aww. Um, but like as soon after they discover the bones, one of the chimps gets beaten up slash murdered with the bones, right? Um, and I think that's to communicate this idea that when you uncover a new idea or technology that fundamentally changes how like your life works um it it can lead to a lot of irrational and violent behavior and that's what we see with hal is this is something completely outside of what he's programmed to handle that gets introduced and uh there's violent repercussions absolutely this this movie echoes like a lot uh like the th- you know thematically a lot of the things are repeated like in the civilized portions like you know the feature portions from like what you see in the, the beginning so that's astute sitting around a table having drinks as opposed to hanging out around the watering hole yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah sort of the reactions to like to the unknown right mm-hmm. yeah a little less shouty the second time around with the monolith and more just like mm, fascinating let's take a you know let's touch it and then let's take a picture together in front yeah of us. that cracked me up <laughs> a little bit yeah you're almost in frame just a little bit yeah oh you know in the radio signal afterwards yeah have of me expected the monolith just to like fall over on top oh nice <laughs> as they're taking Solid. the picture yep and cue the Looney Tune, you know, thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. uh, so yeah, I'm gonna continue digesting this film for a long time and hopefully rewatch it in a couple of years. <laughs> um, take some time. I would say, like, I mean, the book's short, so give that a go if you're curious for more insight. Um, oh, definitely. 2010. Um, Arthur C. Clarke has been on my list for a while. Nice. Yeah, short too. I want to say like 200 pages. I I think I literally read the book in a airplane ride, a layover, and another short airplane airplane ride in high school. So, nice. um, to give you an idea of like how how quick it is. Um, 2010. I would say proceed with the not caution, but like with muted expectations as far as like the brilliance. It is very straightforward. Not a bad movie. There's uh, some really good cast members. Voice of Howl returns. Roy Scheider is in it. Um, up Jaws. Uh, speaking yeah. of a little uh, connection, <laughs> and it takes place uh, as you would expect from a movie called 2010, nine years after this, and kind of deals with the uh, humanity trying to wrangle with what happened aboard the Discovery. And yeah, um, it's not bad. It's worth a while. like. It's worth a watch once. I would say. Um, okay. just, d- doesn't ra- ra- raise to the heights of this, and I think that is also on HBO Max right now. Nice. Because I, I was hovering over it at some point. I'm like, oh, I haven't seen this since, you know, because naturally I got curious after I made it through all the way 2001 to be like, oh, what does a sequel to this look like? And uh, being like, okay, it's not bad. It's not bad. Uh, it's just it's not not the same. Well, and then if... I think there's like two extra books after that. If you really want to continue down the rabbit hole, uh, <laughs> there's 2061 and then 3001 to wrap it up. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Too bad 2001 doesn't look like this. <laughs> yeah know, they had a lot of optimism for where we would be like where we would be at technologically um and i feel like i mean maybe just like 
rub off that Pan Am, you know, logo and slap a SpaceX on it and you might be kind of close. But also RIP Pan Am, especially considering it's been in like two sci-fi things that we have watched. Blade Runner had Pan yeah. Am and then also this and it's like, you guys thought they'd be around. Uh, that is not the case. So the lesson is just to make up every single company in your sci-fi yeah yeah world. exactly <laughs> yeah bell south too i don't know if you saw their logo on the video yeah. phone <laughs> nice <laughs> you know no concept of uh although to be fair like pretty amazing like the idea of like you know like skyping or doing like face chat yeah. um no with kidding. The most or, or like the the ipad yeah yeah where they're watching Absolutely. their little news broadcast yeah I'd like to point out that I think Hilton and the was it Hojo's Howard Johnson were Howard still Johnson. there. <laughs> that's the like the one thing that's like stayed like consistent. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Uh, anybody want to cover anything else two thousand one related uh, before we have us a little game to wind down? I think I'm ready to play. Just a quick shout out to Independence Day for having a Hal cameo joke. Uh, and also <laughs> Wally for having another Hal cameo joke, sort of joke slash plot point device homage as well. So that's all I've got. <laughs> well, if we're going down that route, you can clearly see the 2001 pod, like with the little arms, mm. in Watto's junk pile and Star Wars Episode One, yes. the Phantom Menace. That's right. Oh. It has a little cameo in the junk yard or junkyard. Yep. So there Excellent. we go. <laughs> the more you know i love it can we have like the, a just a recurring segment on easter eggs of the films there <laughs> I, I love easter like, eggs like there was a website called i don't know if it's still around eeggs.com that nice. like n- not only would give you easter eggs in movies but like in dvd menus like used to be a thing like in memento oh, yeah. if you like went into the, like did a certain thing you could like reorder like the movie it would play it like in chronological order instead of like oh, the, backwards Wow. So oh, I love stuff like that. Yeah, that site was cool. I digress, though. <laughs> so I thought um, to this is a little one off game um, to kind of wind this down. It would be fun to um, combine not only uh, my love of 2001, uh, but my love of Pink Floyd. All right. <laughs> so Pink Floyd was rumored to have been approached by Kubrick, um, not verified. It's one of those things that like no one really knows. Um, there's not really a lot of documentation around it, but um, there's enough smoke there, um, including from Kubrick's own family members to say that like it's he was a fan of Pink Floyd. It's very possible that he had kicked around the idea of having them score 2001. However, it didn't really ever get off the ground, but it's one of my favorite little conspiracy theories. And so what I wanted to do today, I've taken um, a list of Pink Floyd song titles and a bunch of title tracks from the unused 2001 A Space Odyssey score that we mentioned earlier. <laughs> and I, I'm going to read these one at a time. And I want you guys to simply tell me, is this a uh, title from the unused 2001 A Space Odyssey score, or is it the title of a Pink Floyd song? Oh, nice. God. I am so game for this. You're going to crush right. me, Will. No, 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 trust me. Look, you're, you're, uh, your skills are strong when it comes to guessing, so don't, <laughs> don't count yourself out, all right? I'm not sure that's, that's a compliment, Will. <laughs> no, your skills are very strong in guessing. You have always consistently nailed it. We're just like, I'm going to go with this. 
and it's always been that so don't count yourself short i put all my stats into luck when i was born yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right are we ready i've got 10 of these by the way so nice gonna rapid fire are we ready one i'll be good just one that's all i want i mean 50 50 shot per i I believe you can do at least one all right all right your first one is interstellar overdrive is it a pink floyd song or a 2001 a space odyssey unused track from the score should probably say the name of the artist um so give me one second so I can give him a shout out. Um, a- Alex North was that uh, composer whose music did not make it into the film. So Alex North, RIP to your score. And sorry, didn't make it in, but you have provided us with a fun game. So thank you for that. I also think you can actually listen to his stuff too. I think, it, is it on YouTube? That there's like the actual... Uh- uh, I, think, I think it was released commercially um looking okay. at this article um yeah i'm not sure i will insert something here into the uh yeah it was give released some, commercially yeah. <laughs> it, it was released commercially nice. all right i've stalled enough what do we think guys interstellar <laughs> overdrive is it a pink floyd song or part of the score i'm going with the score i'm gonna go with pink floyd it is a Pink Floyd. Uh, track. Oh, that's all I needed. Yes. Uh, I can quit. I can quit. Used in Doctor Strange, the original Doctor Strange film, when he was tooling around. And we got very excited as a Pink Floyd fan to hear that. Um, maybe I'll put a little, since we don't give a show about monetization, maybe I'll put like a little sample of uh, these nice. if I can find them all. No promises. But <laughs> here is your next one Moon Rocket Bus. Moon Rocket Bus. Is that from 2001? Or is that a Pink Floyd? We're going to say 2001. I am too. You are both correct. It is a track from the 2001 score. Your next one, Space Talk. (laughs) I'm going to say Pink Floyd. Yeah, I feel like that would be Pink Floyd. You are both incorrect. (laughs) 2001 score title track, not title track, but track. Luck is against me. You should just vote whatever I don't for this point, Will. (laughs) (laughs) All good. These are like, let's face it, these are all going to be guesses. Yeah, I think this is like a misdirection tactic. Um, I don't know if I'm buying that. You can see a theme with the the titles that I picked from Pink Void Socks. Yeah. Uh, They're they're purposely chosen. All right. Um, Your next one is Astronomy Domine. Astronomy Domine. Can you spell that? Uh, astronomy. <laughs> Can you use that in a sentence? Domine is D-O-M-I-N-E. Could okay. be Domini, I guess. Astronomy, Domini. I don't know. I'm going to go with Sound Correct. Yeah. You're both wrong. That is a Pink Floyd song. What? What is? <laughs> Pink floyd No. It is a Pink Floyd song. Your next... Uh, title is Interior Orion. Interior Orion. Pink Floyd. Mm. 
Yeah, Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, I told you, Will. <laughs> I tried to help you. <laughs> All right, currently uh, at the halfway point, two points for Will, one point for May. Is there we where go. We're standing at the Going halfway point that. here, man. Yep. All right, here is your next one, Eclipse. Pink Floyd. Yeah. It is indeed Pink Floyd, the closing track of The Dark Side of the Moon. Here is your next one. Is there anybody out there? (laughs) Feeling Pink Floyd again. I am too. Both correct. No fooling you on that one. It is indeed Pink Floyd. All right, three more to go. Your next one. Eat, meet, and kill. So eat, meet, and kill. May I believe you wanted to mention something? I'll 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 say what I was gonna say after you say what you were gonna say. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, are we gonna stay? Yeah, like that is very fair. Um 2001 soundtrack. I'm gonna say Pink Floyd just to be different. Right, Will is correct. It is from 2001. Okay, your next one. Let there be more light. Let there be more light. I'm going to go with Pink Floyd. I'm going to go with the score. It is Pink Floyd. (laughs) Damn it, all right. (laughs) So... One, two, three, four, five, six points for Will going into the final, and three for May. May made a good showing, though. Here is your final track. Set the control for the heart of the sun. (laughs) Wow. Yo, I hope that's a Pink Floyd song. (laughs) (laughs) But do you think it is a Pink Floyd song? Uh, you know what? I'm gonna waste the point if it's not because I just I want it to be. So I'm gonna say that. I'm gonna say score. It is a Pink Floyd song. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess good because I'm gonna go listen to that now. But <laughs> it is an amazing uh, song from their second album. Um, so very good. Uh, well played, both of you. Uh, again, I picked. Mm-hmm songs that really sounded like they could be tracks so that is not a reflection on any of the ones that either of you got wrong because most of those were either space themed or like things that were kind of thematic for 2001 so well done both of you for getting any of those right honestly well played well likewise don't don't worry you're gonna trounce my butt next time and like keyword countdown or something so (laughs) it's all good it's all good i'll uh, brush up on my pink floyd for the next time (laughs) uh as somebody who was uh lifelong obsessed i can point you in any number of directions so hit me up (laughs) let's uh let's have us another uh main quest shall we see what we draw yes please may has uh made up some ground here had a couple of selections in a row so if we draw another may card uh we this will be the final in a row that we do um Mm -hmm. let's see what we have Ooh, it is a sum of its parts 
And I need a second to refer to our list to see what that is. Sorry, more than the sum of its parts. The description, because I don't think we've had one of these yet, is sometimes it all just comes together perfectly. Discuss mm. how multiple aspects of a film work in tangent to create something truly special. In May, the universe must think that you're truly special because we have been blessed <laughs> with another of your selections. So I think that does bring you up to pretty much um, equal with Will and I on um, nominees. We will not select your film again if we draw it next week. But drumroll please our next film selection <laughs> is the princess bride <gasps> so, oh yeah that that is the bride. that is the comfort flick i need this week <laughs> amazing i believe that was your choice that we talked about in uh, session zero if i'm not mistaken right that's the... i think i've talked about this film as often as i could so <laughs> <laughs> it's been a couple years since i've seen this um and uh, i'm always happy for a reason to rewatch it so um i may show up choice. i may show up uh, in, a, in a mask next episode Ooh, like like a uh, Wesley, like Dread Pirate Roberts, like mask or? Well, like yeah, a... not 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 a COVID mask. <laughs> yeah, I mean you could do both. Like, be... <laughs> amazing. There is that uh, funny throwaway line where he's talking about how he thinks in the future everyone will be wearing masks. Wearing... Yep. <laughs> <laughs> if only you knew, Wesley. He knew. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I can't wait to the hardest part about watching the princess bride is not wanting to quote the princess bride for like weeks oh. after so oh yeah um amazing this well any context you you'd like that. to lend before we uh we break anything you want to tell the audience before we uh say goodbye about the princess bride or anything you want to comment on uh it is a film very near and dear to my heart I will accept no criticism of it JK I will but <laughs> um it is kind of, it's a very earnest parody of fantasy romantic comedies i would say like like heartbreakingly earnest very funny uh but also just like takes everything to the extreme and uh features an incredible cast of actors and actresses and um yeah is uh is a good uh friday night or date night watch for anyone um fun fact my parents actually were like had just started dating when it came out in theaters so that was like um one of one of their first date films wow hell of a first nice. date movie right there right yeah. <laughs> so i may have the princess bride to thank for my existence <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey. <laughs> hey, you were there. I was going to say, I was going to, you know, like, <laughs> wonderful. Well, um, yeah, I can't wait to, to revisit. This is a movie I've seen countless times, but never grow tired of it. It's like the antithesis of 2001 in a lot of ways. Like, um, and then I could like rewatch it over and over again. And it very much is pop some popcorn and like stretch out and just enjoy. So cool. Well, that'll be our discussion uh, next episode. Until then, you can interact with us on social media at ScreenQuestPod on Twitter. Uh, we do Friday film polls and other interesting little tidbits and observations. Uh, give us a like, share, and subscribe, especially that share part. I know I say it over and over again, but it really does help. 
um, you'd be surprised at what a, a quick little like retweet or post will do for uh, for the show's growth. And we do appreciate that. But until next week, we love all of you. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys.